0: It is a great fallacy for a person or a group or a nation to think that because something has gone unchanged for a long time, that it therefore will never change. Let me say that again. It is a great fallacy to think that just because something has gone without changing for a long time, that it will never change or even that it is incapable of changing. We can be blinded by our perspective in history. If you are born into a period of time where this is where the status quo between nations has always been, you can tend to think that that's the way it should be and the way that it always will be. We can also be blinded by our lack of spiritual insight as well, but we'll get to that later. Uh, consider, I mean, last century, did we really think that we would be this far separated from the Soviet Union? That was, they were the evil empire taking over the world. And they're, they're gone now. That's, that coalition is no longer together. Go back a little farther. At the end of the 1800s, a quarter of the world was ruled by the British Empire. Queen Victoria ruled the largest empire the world had ever seen. And without throwing shade to an ally of ours, that's not exactly the case anymore, is it? We talk today about people like Stalin or Hitler or Mussolini when we talk about evil rulers. But if you go back a little farther in history, the guy everybody compared their political adversaries to was Napoleon. And we think of Napoleon and he's kind of a joke, isn't he? <laughs> that short little French guy that thought he, could, thought he could do something. But he actually conquered most of Europe and tried it a couple times. He was striking fear into the hearts of people. I mean, we're going to be celebrating Reformation Day in just a couple weeks. Do you really think that back in the 12 or 1300s that the thought of the church not being united under the authority of the Pope was even possible? What we need to learn through just wisdom of, of being men living in the world and also through the scripture, there is no person and there is no nation that is beyond the judgment and destruction of the Lord. No one is too big to fail in God's eyes. First Corinthians 10 verse 12, applying this personally, we're going to be looking probably mostly at a national level today. It's how the chapter flows. But as individuals, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And we're going to see this today that the nation of Babylon is going to fall. And the people that were in Babylon did not think it was even possible For Babylon to fall. And for us as Christians, and not just us in this culture, but around the world who are living in a declining culture or who have seen their own capital cities fall or their own kings killed and new nations speaking new languages conquering their own land, what part are the people of God to play? And I'm not going to dive too far today into calling out national sins of of our own culture. We've done that at great length before, especially at the beginning of Daniel. But I want us to learn the broad lesson that we learned from the story of Belshazzar in in Daniel chapter 5. This is a monumental story, and it is actually one of the key historical records that enables us to understand what happened to Babylon. So let's read the first four verses of chapter 5, and we'll take it one piece at a time as we go. King Belshazzar, right away we know something is different because this is not Nebuchadnezzar. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, does anything good come after the phrase, when someone had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, "...be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone." Let's take a quick look at the structure of the book of Daniel. I haven't gotten into this yet. I was waiting until we got here. As I've said before, the book of Daniel is written in Hebrew, like most of the Old Testament, at the beginning and at the end. But from chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 7, verse 28, it's written in Aramaic, which was the spoken language of the day. This Aramaic portion has a very obvious chiastic structure. And people have tried to apply this to the whole book of Daniel. I have found that to be less than convincing. But let's look at this. From chapter 2 through 7, we have a chiastic structure. This means that we start with point A, point B, point C. Then we hit point C again, then point B again, then point A again. And it's, it's usually flipped and the change that happens is how you, you structure these things. It was a very common thing in this culture. So let me show you what I mean. In chapter 2 we had the prophecy of the golden statue, the four kingdoms that were going to come, remember? We're gonna see the same thing in chapter seven when Daniel has the vision of the four beasts that come out of the sea. It's one of the reasons we know he's not talking about different kingdoms there. Chapter three and chapter six, both Tell stories of deliverance of a godly man from execution. In chapter 3, we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego delivered out of the fiery furnace. And in chapter 6, we have Daniel delivered out of the lion's den. Then in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we have stories of a king being humbled. Last week, we saw Nebuchadnezzar, who was humbled by being made to think he was a cow living in the field by the Lord. And today we're going to see that Belshazzar is going to be actually killed and his kingdom will be given over. So that's how this passage flows from chapter two through chapter seven, which remember, this is primarily addressing the days and the destiny of the Gentile nations. There's a very defined structure to it. And coming out of chapter four into chapter five, uh, there, this is the centerpiece as we move on. And this is going to describe the fall of Babylon. And we can actually, when you get to this point of biblical history, we be able, are able now to corroborate and confirm some of these details through archaeology and historical records. So October 12th or 13th, 539 B.C., that's the date that Babylon fell. October 12th or 13th, 539 B.C., which without planning it that way, that would have been last week in 539 B.C., So we're now in chapter 5. This is 539 B.C. You might want to write that in the margins as you come here. It's been 23 years since Nebuchadnezzar died. Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. So there's been quite a stretch of time. It would have been more than that between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And in total, since chapter 1, verse 1, when Daniel was brought to Babylon, it's been 66 years. Because Nebuchadnezzar defeated Egypt at Carchemish, which is the same year he took the captives from Jerusalem in 605 BC. So we we can nail this down precisely where we are in history, which tells us, as we see later on, Daniel is an old man at this point. He's probably in his 80s now. And this is where we are. Now, Belshazzar is called king here. We have not met him yet. And Nebuchadnezzar is called his father. But you may know this. We've talked about it before. The the Semitic term father, as it is in many cultures, does not have to necessarily mean his immediate biological father. For example, there's no word for grandfather in Hebrew. They'll just say, my father and my father's father, right? And my father's father's father. Or I will be gathered to my fathers. Or a son of David or even a great, great, great grandson of David will refer to David, his father. So knowing that, we're going to see actually this later on when he he decides to make Daniel the third ruler of the kingdom. Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Nebuchadnezzar reigned for a very long time uh, until he died. And he was succeeded immediately by three different short reigning kings. I don't have their names for you, um, but some of them appear in the biblical record. One of his sons became king for, I think, two or three years. Then he had a son-in-law that reigned for a very short time. Then he had a grandson who also reigned for a very short time. Then somebody named Nabonidus took the throne. Nabonidus was not Nebuchadnezzar's son. He was his son-in-law. So I think the best way to think about this, and there are many who agree with this. This is not a hot take here. Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar's daughter and Nabonidus, her husband. And Belshazzar, we know this from history. This is one of those things that keeps coming up in Daniel. People for a long time said, we have no record of anybody named Belshazzar. Daniel just made him up. He's just a made-up character. Belshazzar's name means, may Baal save the king. And it's an ironic name because that's exactly what Baal can't do in the story of Daniel 5. But it's actually his real name. We know that there was somebody named Belshazzar. That's not disputed any longer. Because Nabonidus was an interesting fellow. He actually spent way more time away from Babylon than he did in the city of Babylon. There was one stretch where he spent 10 years in a city called Tema. And people think this had something to do with his devotion to the false god that he served. And Belshazzar served as regent while he was away. So Belshazzar was ruling in Babylon while Nabonidus, the actual king, if you want to put it that way, was away. And so he's called king, even though... Technically, if we want to use the system we're used to, we'd say, well, that would make him the prince, not the king. But in this culture, they use that term a little more loosely than we do. So this is who we have. We have the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, whose father is away, and he's ruling from Babylon. And the reason Nabonidus was not there now is because Nabonidus was on campaign. He was fighting a war against Persia and he was losing the war against Persia. Only a few short days before the fall of Babylon, two big cities in the kingdom, Opus and Sippar, this is history now, this is not in your Bible, but Opus and Sippar, Babylonian cities, had fallen to Persia, and Nabonidus the king had to flee and withdraw, I I believe back to Tamar, if I'm not mistaken, and when this story begins, Persia is at the gates of Babylon. And that by Babylon, now I'm talking about the city, not not the empire itself. They are camped outside the city of Babylon. They've just won some major victories, sent the king and his armies running. And in here we have Prince Belshazzar making a feast for a thousand people. And they're all getting drunk. By calling attention to the fact that he's drinking wine, of course, they, they all drink wine at the, in their everyday life and also at their festivals. But by hammering it like the text does, this is a drunken debauch. Also by saying that his wives and his concubines were there, this was unusual in this culture. The men celebrated with the men and the women celebrated with the women. You'll, we'll see this later in the Persian story where he's going to send for Queen Vashti because she wasn't there. Usually what they would do, unfortunately, is that they would bring harlots. They would bring whores to the the feast for the men to celebrate. But by the fact that the men and women are together, this is implying that there is a lot of sexual immorality going on in addition to the drunkenness. So he's having a wild party while an enemy is literally at the gates. And what does he do? He comes and he sends for the vessels that had been taken from the temple of Jerusalem. We read about this in chapter 1, verse 2, that when Nebuchadnezzar took the captives, he also took some of the golden vessels. If you were with us in the book of Leviticus, you know about this, that they had these golden vessels plates and pitchers and bowls that were used at the table of showbread in the holy place where they would bake the bread, where the priests would eat the showbread ceremoniously and where they would pour out drink offerings before the Lord. These things were taken. It was a spoils of war. They would take the things out of one God's temple and bring it back to their God's temple in order to show my God is better than your God. Similar to how the children of Israel kept the sword of Goliath in the tabernacle. It was a trophy, but they were never used Until now, Belshazzar calls for them. Now, why is this? The reason, probably, most likely, and I I think is fairly certain, is that Belshazzar knew about the prophecies that Daniel had made. Belshazzar, if I remember correctly, would have been 14 years old when Nebuchadnezzar passed. And Nebuchadnezzar ended his life with faith in the Most High God. We talked about what that might have meant some last week. But he would have known these stories. And in fact, Daniel is going to remind him of them later in this chapter and rebuke him for not taking them to heart. So he had known that Nebuchadnezzar had been taught that it is Almighty God who builds up and tears down nations. And it is Almighty God that is going to lead the golden kingdom of Babylon into the silver kingdom to go back to the statue image of Medo-Persia. That is what... Jehovah God had prophesied. Now here's Belshazzar. Get the picture here. Armies are being defeated. The city is surrounded. And the prophecy seems to be fulfilled that Persia was going to overtake Babylon. So what does Belshazzar do? Does he go to the Lord and ask for him to intervene? No, no. He takes his golden vessels from the Lord's temple and blasphemes before all the people by using them not only to get drunk, but to praise the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. What is he doing here? In 586 BC, so this is now some years since then, 586 BC, Jerusalem had fallen, not just what happened in 605 when the captives were taken away, but the city had been besieged and destroyed, and the temple had been sacked and laid waste by Uh, this would have been Nebuchadnezzar's son. This would have been Nabonidus that did this or one of his other sons. It's not clear in the text. But the city's been destroyed. So what Belshazzar is doing by saying, this Jehovah, this almighty God, prophesied that our kingdom would fall to Persia. And it might seem like that's what's going on, but do you know what we did? We went into that God's capital city, destroyed his temple, and took away his golden vessel. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to praise our gods with his vessels to show him exactly what we think of his power to dictate what happens to our city. It's a blasphemous, intentional thing. He's saying, this is what I think of your warnings and your prophecy. And he gets everybody to do this with him. Now, why would he do something so foolish? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar didn't even do this. And Daniel's going to rebuke him for that, too. The reason is because Babylon, the city, had been built to withstand a 20-year siege, the historical records tell us. It had been built right over the Euphrates River, which is an enormous river. So there was always to be fresh water. There were enough farms and crops within the city walls that they they could withstand any siege longer than an army outside could. So it was, that was how war was done at this time. You closed the gates and you penned people in until they were hungry and they came out and they were willing to make a deal. The walls in Babylon, some records say, were 57 feet thick. That's very thick. And they were sitting in this city like, okay, yeah, Persia's out there, but what are they going to do? They, they're not going to smash, you can't take a battering ram to a wall like that. And we have enough food and water to last us decades. So what are we worried about? When we believe failure is impossible, we fall prey to all kinds of dangerous temptations, don't we? When we think that there's no way we can fail, it makes us frivolous, like Belshazzar is being frivolous here. Is this what he should be doing when there's an enemy at the gates? He should be having a war council right now, shouldn't he? And it makes us boastful. And what's terrible about this is Belshazzar had done nothing to build Babylon. He had not conquered anything. He had not built anything. He had inherited it from his father. He wasn't even out on the campaign now. His father was doing that. But because he had been given these things, he was unable to think that this might fall. Nebuchadnezzar would have always known that Babylon could fall because he had begun life under the Assyrian Empire. And then he had defeated Egypt and defeated Assyria and built Babylon with great blood, sweat, and tears. So he would have always had this notion, this is as fragile as any other nation. But through a, a few generations, sitting in this beautiful, opulent city, what does he care about Persia? And this is what can happen to us. Look at us in our own country. We are blessed with enormous security, not just the most powerful military the world has ever known, and that's not an exaggeration. Not only incredible prosperity, but I mean, consider where we sit geographically. We've got an ocean on either side and an ally to the north and the south. And when you compare the strength of our nation to the allies to the north and south, it's not even to be compared. We are allies with some of the strongest nations in the world. So even when somebody else rattles their saber against us, we really don't get that worried about it. We might be afraid that we'd have to go to war again over there or afraid that things might tighten up here. But really, if if Babylon could withstand a 20-year siege, the United States could withstand a 200-year siege. We have everything we need here. But these things were hard won. They've not always been that way. Some of you all know I'm a huge student of American history. I love to read the, the history back in like the early 1800s, like pre-Civil War, because I don't know anything about that. But you learn, like this is the time when the states were being made and laws are being established. And even after the, the war was over, as we settled the country, like it, it could have gone the other way so many times. And we have not always been a worldwide superpower. But if you're like me and you're, you're born in 1991, I, I wasn't even... when the Berlin Wall came down. So I've never lived life with a great adversary for my own country. And what can happen is you can start to think that these things are just normal and natural and the way things ought to be. And it makes you arrogant towards God. Because God is the one that raises up and pulls down nations. He's the only one that does, the only one that can. Look what the prophet Obadiah said to to the city of Edom, the country of Edom. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who shall bring me to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Edom, they were wilderness dwellers. If you've seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where they're out in the desert and they're in the, the, the big canyon and there's the, where Petra is, that, that's where Edom lived. They lived in these dark canyons. They couldn't be defeated. They would bring enormous empires to the negotiating table because it wasn't worth it to pick a fight with Edom. But the Lord says, do you think that I can't bring you down? Don't be arrogant. You cannot let your blessings, either personally or nationally, make us renounce our need for God. What do we need God for? Look how strong we are when it's God that gave all those things to you in the first place. God had raised up Babylon. Not even Nebuchadnezzar could do that. The Lord had done it. Nobody, not even the founding fathers or pick your favorite president, could raise up the United States of America. Only God can do that. And for us to then say, we don't need you anymore, God, is a dangerous, foolish thing. And not only that, when you've not had to fight for what you have, you can become vapid and frivolous and start throwing wild parties while the enemy's at the gates instead of buckling down and doing what you're supposed to. Verse 5. So we're in this this party. They're taking the golden vessels of the temple and worshiping false gods with them. But in verse 5, immediately... The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, meaning where everybody could see it. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. keep trying that. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed and his lords were perplexed. So into this scene of debauchery comes a, Visible human hand that begins to write on the wall by the lampstand. And he says he he wrote on the plaster of the walls. They actually have discovered the palace that the kings of Babylon lived in. And they believe that it was this palace. There is one particular room, which was the main audience hall of the king, that several archaeologists believe would have been the room they were in, although it's impossible to be certain. This room was 17 by 52 meters. It was huge. It was, in fact, plastered with white gypsum. So that's one tiny little historical detail that only somebody who had been in that room could have known. It also was beautiful. It was decorated with bricks that had been glazed with a bright blue color. There were golden columns that had intricate carvings on them and bronze gates and bronze on the the pillars that went up to the ceiling. It would have been opulent and beautiful. But into all that comes the hand of God writing on the wall. And Belshazzar was frightened, as well he may be. Not only that, but I couldn't believe this when I read it, and I had to double, triple check it. But when it says in verse 6, his limbs gave way, the literal Aramaic there is his loins gave way. What the scripture is saying is that King Belshazzar soiled himself when he saw that. And don't think that's inappropriate. That's what it says. That's what it says. He was rather afraid. And you're supposed to scoff like you're doing. I mean, consider this big king who thinks he's bigger than almighty God, and there he is, like a little baby. You're supposed to look at him and think, what a pathetic figure. Once again, he calls for the magicians. They keep doing this. Maybe this time they'll be able to tell us what it is. And they were once again unable to decipher the words, as I've said over and over again, It doesn't matter what field you're in. You might be the expert, but when it comes to the matters of God, those things are only spiritually discerned. They don't get it. They're unable to decipher the words. God, in his grace, gives warnings to nations when they are going too far. He tries to get their attention. And we even use this phrase, hey, the writing's on the wall, to mean that something has happened that ought to catch your attention, to know that things are about to go down. That's why. The Lord does this. I'm not going to read this passage, but in Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 11, God rebukes the children of Israel because of all the things he had allowed to happen to them to get their attention. And he says, because you've ignored all these, destruction is coming. And so let's look at these things that God said he did to Israel. The first one was famine. He says that there, just, there wasn't enough food for you. Number two was drought that there wasn't rain. God even says, I let it rain here and not there to make you wonder what's going on with the weather so that I could get your attention. Number three, there was crop failure. He said, I sent locusts. I sent blight and mildew into your crops. Number four, pestilence. There were plagues that swept through, sicknesses that swept through your nation. Number five was war. You went off to battle and you were defeated. And number six is destruction. God said, I even allowed some of your cities to be totally wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah so that you would know. And I would add a seventh thing would be God sends prophets to speak directly to his people. Now, when these things happen, is it always the work of God trying to get a nation's attention? No, I don't think that we can say that. But when things like that happen... Like a handwriting on the wall, it's supposed to draw your attention to the fact that there is something beyond you, beyond the physical, that there are things that you cannot control. We still to this day call hurricanes and earthquakes acts of God, because there are things that are so, it doesn't matter how how well it's been built, how, how tight the city is, how good the infrastructure, when a hurricane and tornado blow through, there's not a lot you can do. California is sitting on the San Andreas fault line. And it is well known one day, whether it's now or 10,000 years in the future, when that thing goes, California is going to be sunk into the water like Atlantis. They call that the big one out in California. Because there's nothing you can do to stop it. Why do they still live there? Well, we can't do anything about it. You can't fix it. You know, it's not like Apollo 13. Let's get in there and try to put it all together. You can't fix it. And those things that are beyond your control are supposed to cause you to lift your eyes upward and pay attention to the fact that there's, there's somebody that I need to be talking to. Jesus put it this way. In Luke 13, verses one through five, it says, there were some present who came to Jesus and told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So there were some people that had been killed while they were offering sacrifice to the Lord. Did you hear what happened? Did you hear about the, the, the government and he, they killed this guy? And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus did not give them the reason why bad things happened. What he said was, you see that? It could happen to you. You need to repent and get right with God. I think that's a a fascinating parallel to our own culture, our own history. When, When the Twin Towers went down, everyone was going, what happened? Is this God? Did God do this? Has God judged us? Some said yes. Some said no. But I can say at the very least with Jesus, if you don't repent, you likewise will perish. So we ask things like that. Was was the pandemic, was was COVID-19, was that an act of God upon us? Is is inflation, is this God's uh, wrath upon us? Somebody needs to tell us. We say, I don't know, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. God expects us to react to disaster with repentance. That's why he sends disaster. In fact, Amos 3 verse 6 says, disaster does not come to a city unless the Lord has done it. God brings these things in. And I will say it is less than profitable for Christians to speculate about the reasons for catastrophes that happen. There are many so-called prophecy teachers that take bad things that happen in the news, try to pin it to somewhere in the Bible or to some societal ill that they don't like. And they say, the reason this hurricane happened is because of this. The reason this war is happening is because of this sin. God is bringing judgment. The Lord very often and most of the times does not give us that insight. But what he does say is, you have an opportunity to let this crisis be a turning point in your life. I mean, look at your own life. Sometimes you lose your job through no fault of your own. Sometimes you get sick through no fault of your own. Or somebody crashes into your car rather than you being irresponsible. Say, did God do this to me? I don't know. And neither do you. But you should take it as an opportunity to get right with the Lord. And by crashing this party here, God is reminding Belshazzar, there are greater forces at work in the world than armies and economies. We'd all do well to remember that. There's a lot more going on than just this army versus that army, or this economy versus that economy, or this system and that system, or this ruler, that ruler, this political party, that political party. And as we go through the book of Daniel, you're going to get the clearest look in Scripture of what goes on behind those scenes, the warnings God sends. Well, verse 10, The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. That's ironic, isn't it, if you know the story? Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. You might want to change your pants though. (laughs) There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God's. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. Is he bragging there? It's kind of hard to tell. He might be. Don't forget who you are. I have heard of you that the spirit of the Elohim... Pretty cool in there. that He's probably meaning it plural, but if you know your Bible... It's it's the Holy Spirit. And that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. Daniel's like, I've heard this before. (laughs) But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Once again, very similar story to Joseph, who was brought before Pharaoh out of the prison. So in in response to this disruption, it seems like everybody knew about it. If there's a thousand lords plus their wives and their concubines... The queen hears about it, and she comes in. Now, this is not Belshazzar's wife. Remember, his wives were already there, and Belshazzar was not the first ruler. So this is likely his mother, the queen mother is how you might translate that there, or even his grandmother. Uh, There's actually a lot of historical record about Nebuchadnezzar's wife, whose name was Nitocris, And she was renowned for her piety and for her wisdom. So it could be that this is who this is. And she also kind of talks to him like a mom or a grandma, doesn't she? Right. So in any case, this is the queen mother. And she reminds him about Daniel, that the spirit was within him and all he'd done for Nebuchadnezzar. And we ask ourselves, now, wait a minute, why wasn't Daniel with the Chaldeans and the astrologers in the first place? Wasn't he the ruler over them? Well, yes, but remember, it's it's been a long time. It's been decades There's been four different kings and now four and a half really with this king regent. And later on, we'll see in Daniel chapter six, there's all kinds of of scheming and internal politics. And maybe Daniel uh, was given a prophecy to some king who didn't want to hear it. And so he was demoted or maybe he had just retired. That's entirely possible too. He's in his eighties now, remember. But in any case, he's brought in, he's offered the purple robe. Purple dye was very, very expensive at this time. And so only those who were rich or powerful could have it. A golden chain and a rank. He's called the third ruler. And if we, knowing what we know about history, this makes perfect sense. That Nabonidus was the first ruler. Belshazzar was the second. So he's offering to give Daniel third ruler, to be the one in charge of the whole kingdom after him. So isn't it interesting that people say, there's no history about anybody named Belshazzar, and so the Bible is historically inaccurate. You dig a little bit longer, and it turns out not only is the Bible historically accurate, it gets the details right. And the things you point at and say, well, that's not true, it turns out the Bible was true. At the very least, the Bible is a primary source of these times. You would think that people would give it a little more respect, especially after they keep getting embarrassed when we dig stuff up. But he goes to Daniel I find that this is often the case. When the chips are down, when the wise men don't have the answers, people will start to look back to God. Both personally, this will happen. If nothing starts to work, you know, that, that's when I'll get a phone call from somebody that hasn't been in church in five years. Hey, man, I'm having, having some problems. I'm like, really? You're calling me? That must have been what Daniel was thinking, right? Really? He, he wants to hear from me. He's not going to like what I had to say. And people are even now doing this in our own country and have throughout history that in times of crisis, the churches fill up, people start to look back to God, and our Christian heritage all of a sudden becomes really important again. Now, as I said, I've done a lot of reading of history, and it can be very disappointing to see how some of your favorite historical figures interacted with the preachers and the churches of their day or to read the things that they wrote about the Bible in their, their journals, for example. Thomas Jefferson very famously didn't like all of the miracle stories in the Bible and excised them so he could have his own personal copy with just the philosophy in it. He also spoke more highly of the Quran than the New Testament. That's something else to consider. So you see that and you go, oh, come on, man. I don't want to hear that. I just, why can't everybody just, just get along? But, so there's been this adversarial relationship, but I mean, the church has been a fixture in the United States of America. Most of the people that came here at first were coming to escape religious persecution. My own ancestors did that. They came to what is now Connecticut, and then they became Moravians and fell out of history for a little while, but that's not what we're talking about today. Even somebody like John Leland, who was the Baptist pastor in Orange, Virginia, he refused to give support to the Constitution when it was being ratified unless there was a, a Bill of Rights that included the freedom to exercise religion freely. And James Madison, remember, the father of the Constitution, was from Virginia. And if he can't even get his own state to go along with this thing, then that's not, that's not going to look good for him. He meets with this pastor who says, well, well, we'll support it if you give us freedom of religion. So it was through negotiations with the church that that bill got put in there in the first place. And we've needed it, have we not? <laughs> over the years, over the centuries now? I mean, the, the, it, was, it was the Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening that happened in the 1840s that historians credit with the rise of the abolitionist movement. Millions of people got saved and their consciences were all woken up to what was going on with slavery. Of course, we don't get any credit for that, but we don't need it, the Lord knows. I mean, throughout, throughout all of history, and so people, wanna, when things get down, you know, when things are good, what do we need God for? When things go down, they say, wait a minute, what were we worshiping before this? And we should be careful, by the way, about blaming the church of the state of the country. Well, but where has the church been? They haven't been speaking out. Oh, yes, they have. Oh, yes, we have. We've got to remember that. Well, where, where was the church when abortion was, was legalized? Protesting in the streets. That's where they were. They were preaching about it in the pulpits they they've been talking about these things for a very long time. I love going back and listening to sermons by Adrian Rogers for example. And it's like you know preaching in the in the 80s or sometimes even the late 70s in some cases and he's warning about all this stuff that happened. I'm like, well, wow, so much for the fact that we were silent and let these things go. And the church was calling out, you know, now the big thing is Uh, you know, the the homosexual movement is really starting to aim towards children and people are freaking out. Isn't that what James Dobson and Focus on the Family were saying decades ago? And they were called bigots and they were called fear mongers and they were called haters and homophobes for that. The church has been speaking. People haven't been listening. So remember that. I mean, yeah, we, we can't be silent, but most of the time the church isn't. People just don't listen. And Jesus really rebuked people who could only get on board with what God had done in the past and missed what he was doing in the present. Matthew 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, ye hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. This is always what happens. Billy Graham is a great man the second he's dead. Right, all these great godly men that God raised up, oh man, they were so important to our country. And at the time, nobody wanted anything to do with them. And it makes you go, you know, I, I heard some guy, he says, it's really interesting. Throughout history, the, the church has, has always called out the moral issues. And then he goes, why aren't they doing that today? I'm like, we are, you just ain't paying attention. He said, well, yeah, but they're they're pro-life, and they believe in traditional marriage, and we know that's not right. And isn't it interesting? You're able to recognize that they got it right in the past, but when they speak to you about today, you think that they're out of line. Belshazzar didn't care what Daniel had to say until he had nowhere else to go, which is why we must not be flattered when things go bad and people start looking to the church again. It's a good thing, and there will be fruit from it, But that is very often just what people do. And they go to the church and they hear a few strong words and they hear the words of Jesus and they feel better and they go back out. The church will never receive credit in the flesh for our victories. Hospitals came from the church, universities historically came from the church. Abolition was a Christian movement, but we don't get any credit for that. And when culture shifts and we're no longer in the center, we get all the blame which is why we're not supposed to look for their approval because it's, it's a fickle thing. What God has called us to do, God has not called us to get out there and change the culture. What he's called us to get out there is do is make disciples and proclaim the truth. Ezekiel 33, God told him, I've made you a watchman. Your job is to watch. And when you see the nation going into sin, call it out. He says, if the people then sin, that's not on you. Can I liberate some of you from that? It's not your responsibility to make it right. It's your responsibility to speak the truth in love and leave the rest. What is not good is if you keep silent and don't say anything. But we will be faithful and resting in the love and the grace of the Lord. And let's take a look at Daniel in verse 17. Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. He's like, I'm not about to give you a good prophecy because you're giving me nice stuff. Micah dealt with that a lot in in his book. He had prophets that would preach something good if they got a good meal. And if they didn't give him a good meal, then they would preach disaster. But he says, nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Who gave it to him? The most high God. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. We learned to the story last time. Verse 22, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. So first, we've got to rebuke. Before we get to that thing on the wall, let me tell you what you need to hear, man. Sometimes the world is looking for answers, but they're asking the wrong questions. And you've got to tell them what they need to hear. Then, verse 24, from his presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided And given to the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel, first of all, disdains the gifts of Belshazzar. He's like, I don't need a purple robe, thank you very much. Instead, he chooses to remind him of the truth and his own heritage and his failure in forgetting it. We've talked with people before who are in England now, and they've, they've, of course, cast off the church a long time ago, and now they're trying to go back to Thor and Odin and the false gods they worshiped. And you consider this and you go, When you you were serving the Lord at the height of your religion, you ruled the whole globe. When you were serving those gods, you were scraping around in the mud. Why would you go back to those gods? This is similar to what Daniel is telling Belshazzar. He's like, Nebuchadnezzar, your, your ancestor whose shadow you are living in, knew who the true God was. And you just blasphemed that God. He's forgetting that, yeah, you destroyed Jerusalem, but Jehovah was never conquered. Jehovah gave Jerusalem into Babylon's hand. And he says, and you are in his hand, which is, of course, very ironic because there was just a giant hand writing on the wall. He says, you're in his hand, that hand. And he explains these four Aramaic words. It was really three, but one of them is repeated. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Now, you maybe have remembered this as Upharsin. Here's why the ESV says and parson. That U, which is the Hebrew letter vav, is the word and. So by putting that in front, it's really a conjunction. So it is just parson. And by, why does he say parson here and peres there? Parsin is plural. Peres is singular. So mene, mene, tekel. And then the word would be peres with a vav in front of it, meaning and peres. Now the meaning of this is obvious. The obvious is that your kingdom is done. But let's break down what the symbolism was. There's three ways to look at this, and they're all working together. They're not opposed. First one is Daniel looks at these as verbs, that they are passive participles, if you are interested in linguistics there. And it would be translated like this, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. God writing on the wall, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. There's also another way to look at this. And because the Aramaic and Semitic languages are written without vowels, you can take them multiple ways. The Bible does this a lot. One way to look at this is not as passive verbs, but as nouns. Mina, mina, shekel, and parson, which is a half shekel. That These would be money. These would be coins that they were used. You've read about a mina in the Bible, right? That this, this mina was buried in the ground, and this man, your mina, has gained five more. That's that word, mene. And then tekel is the Aramaic for the Hebrew word shekel. So tekel. And then a peres was a half shekel. And what's interesting about this, if you add up, so if we have a mina, a shekel, and a half shekel, well, since it's plural, two half shekels, that would add up to 62, so a mina is, is 60, a shekel is one, and two half-shekels would be one more, which adds up to 62, whatever their currency was at the time. Darius, when he rides in, is 62 years old. So that's interesting, isn't it? But you can see, in any case, we're using this uh, financial picture here. And the last one is the, the, the word parson. The, the root word is peres. It would be P-R-S. There would be no vowels underneath it. If you put E's in there, and it's peres, it means divided. If you replace the E's with A's, it becomes the word Persia, paras. So there's double meanings. Can you see how, how dense this is? So numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. The number 62 is in there somewhere. That's how old Darius was. And if you take that last word and you revocalize it, it becomes Persia. Now, Daniel knew this was going to happen because in in chapter 7, Daniel has the vision of the four beasts. And in chapter 8, he has the vision of the ram with one horn larger than the other. Those prophecies at this stage of the story have already been given. Daniel has already seen these visions in the years of Babylon, or years of Belshazzar. So he already knows it's Persia, So for him seeing this, it just confirms what God's already revealed to him. Amos three verse seven says, "The Lord God does nothing without first revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets." Daniel does not try to befriend Belshazzar. He spoke the truth plainly unto repentance. How might the story have been different if, if Belshazzar had torn his clothes and all the men and all the women had decided to pray and ask for God's forgiveness? I don't know, but the Lord is, is abounding in mercy. And this is what the church is to do. This is what God's people are to do. That is, as things get bad, we're supposed to give warnings. And I've done this before. I don't want to spend a lot more time on it. But, I mean, the self-indulgence of our culture, the selfishness, the, whether that's born out in gluttony, whether that's born out in vanity, it's... It's all about us. Sexual immorality of of every kind, ranging from pornography and adultery and fornication to homosexuality and transgenderism. And then syncretism, that we're bringing every religion together. That every religion has something to add. Let's put them all together. Like we're the first ones that came up with that. That's what polytheism is. Except we're not giving these God's names. Bringing it all together. God has judged nations for those things. For one of those things. And we've got to continue to give warnings. And I will continue to give warnings from this pulpit. I feel 100% confident, and you should too, as somebody who attends this church, that we are not being silent on these matters. And say, well, I want to go march in the streets with a sign. Okay, that's fine. But I think this is far more effective. By proclaiming it to actual people with actual faces and whose names you know, who can then stand on those things in their own individual lives. But this always has to be balanced with a heart of prayer and a heart of love. What do you think Daniel's been doing these decades? We're going to find out in chapter 6. Praying three times a day. He doesn't come in and just denounce Belshazzar. He tries to rebuke him and bring him back to what's right. If we don't have a heart of love when we call out the nation's ills or our family's ills or this or that, then, then we're just angry partisans that doesn't help anybody. We have to have a heart of love that desires to see our adversaries come to repentance. We don't want to see them get their just desserts. We want to see them find the grace of Almighty God in Christ Jesus. We pray for them and not just pray that God smites them, by the way. And that's not even a, that's not even a terrible thing to pray. David prayed that. Lord, bring an end to the works of this man or this woman, whatever it takes, Lord. But at the same time, you should be praying about, Lord, we also know that Rather than strike down Saul of Tarsus, you made him Paul the Apostle. Jesus in Luke 13 told a parable. I'll just read it quickly. A man planted a fig tree in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit and found none. So he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've been seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? You might say, this culture has not been bearing spiritual fruit for years and years and years. Just, shouldn't God just judge it now? But the vine dresser answered him, Sir, leave it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on fertilizer. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. That's the heart of a Christian. That's the heart of Christ. Come into the Lord and say, don't judge yet. Give me more time. Let me speak to them. Let me teach them. Let me call out what is wrong and lift up what is right. Just delay for a while, Lord, that you might show mercy. We should constantly be about the business of making disciples in in any culture, not just in this time. And if things should swing to where we don't feel like we're constantly beset on every side, it probably won't because that's just been history. But if it ever comes to that place, we still continue the work. And if things collapse, we still continue the work because we don't know what God has planned until he has done it. Verse 29, Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Daniel is given the rewards anyway. Belshazzar didn't listen to him before. Why should he listen to him now? And he's promoted to third ruler of the kingdom. Why is that significant? Where's Nabonidus? He's out on campaign, and he's about to be defeated and executed too. Belshazzar is killed. Who's ruling Babylon when Persia comes in? Daniel. Daniel would have been the one accepting the terms of surrender from Darius the Mede. He would have been the one transitioning over. Why do you think Daniel automatically has such a high position in the Persian Empire? Because that's what Persia did. They kept their other rulers in place and allowed them to govern. Do you see how important this is? He, he's the third ruler of the kingdom. He's, he's the first ruler real fast. And then in these two, last two verses, we have a very quick description of the fall of Babylon where Belshazzar died and a new king came in. But there are a number of historical records that tell us exactly what happened that night. And you can go look these up. The the two most important are Herodotus, who is good, but Herodotus wrote much later, so sometimes his details are speculative. And Xenophon, who is another Greek historian, there's something called the Cyrus Cylinder, which is, a, this is how they would record things on cylinders, not on paper. And then you would roll it into the wax, and that's where the words came down, uh, that describes what happened. And then there's also writings called the Babylonian Chronicles that talk about this. What happened? Cyrus, who was the king and general of the Persian um, Empire, dammed the Euphrates River and redirected parts of it. And while the city was partying, and, and all these records talk about how they were having a debauched festival when it was taken over. So that's something else that the Bible matches here. But they lowered the the water so low that the soldiers with their horses were able to ride under the portcullis that went down into the river and just ride right into the city. And nobody resisted them. They went straight for the palace. And in in some stories, the only person who died was Belshazzar. Some stories even say that Belshazzar's own people assassinated him and gave the the kingdom over to the Persians. But they, they won without a fight. They took it over that night. In fact, while Daniel is giving this prophecy, they may very well have been marching into the city. Now, we have this guy here. We'll talk about this more next time. But Darius the Mede, he is unknown to history, meaning we do not have any external records of him. Now, before people jump to conclusions and say, therefore, he must not have been real. Every time folks try that, they get embarrassed. Just look at Belshazzar. So I'm willing to just suspend so judgment on that, but there have been some speculations. Some people maybe say Cyrus had a throne name, which is Darius, similar to how the popes will take a different name when they become pope, for example. Uh, this was done at this time. Perhaps this was just a local ruler. Uh, there are some who believe that the general that conquered Persia, his name was Ugbaru, was then given authority over the city of Babylon, so that he's not king of the whole empire, but he's just king over This one section, uh, because Cyrus, who is also in the Bible, was very famously the, the king of the Persian Empire when it began. Or it could have been somebody else, or it could be we just simply don't know, and we can take the Bible's word for it. But the Lord fulfilled his word against Babylon. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others, but I'll just read those. Isaiah and Jeremiah had both prophesied well ahead of the destruction. And in fact, in Isaiah's case, centuries ahead of the destruction of Babylon. In Jeremiah's case, decades ahead of the destruction. Look what they said. Isaiah 21, a stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up Elam, another word for Persia. Lay siege, O media. All the sighing she has called I bring to an end. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. Isaiah prophesied the fall of Babylon at the hands of Persia and Media before there even was a Babylonian empire. Jeremiah 51:11. sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Once again, when Jeremiah was prophesying, Babylon was on the rise. Babylon had just conquered the world. Who was Persia? Who were the Medes? And the answer to that question, by the way, the Medes and the Persians were allies until the Persians conquered the Medes and still kept them as part of the empire, but the Persians were in charge. It has been plain throughout the book of Daniel, if you've got one lesson from this book, that only God can raise up and put down rulers and nations. Psalm 75 says not from the east nor from the west comes raising up and pulling down, but only from the Lord. So when I say things like God raised up the United States, people will say, you believe that God did that for us? Only God can do that. And it's not just for us either. It's for every nation. If a nation falls or a nation rises, God has done it. Because Psalm 75 tells us only God can do that. But we need to remember, as I said at the beginning, that kings perish Nations fail, civilizations collapse, cultures crumble, and we must not think that we are exempt from that, that we're somehow special. I think we're special because I live here, but in terms of the eyes of God, there's only one kingdom that's going to last forever. And if we persist in the sins that other nations whom God has destroyed committed, then we will suffer their fate. Jesus said in Matthew 11 to Bethsaida and Chorazin, he said, if I had done these miracles in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. It's going to be worse for you because of that. Now, I have no word from the Lord as far as what the future holds for us, except to say, this is what I firmly believe, and I I will say this is not scripture. This is just what I think, and I think the Lord has, has maybe spoken to me on some of this, that I believe that there will be revival granted to this country. I think that we're going to see a restoration of worship of the Lord and that we're going to see another wave of salvation, another harvest in the U.S. And that our greatest temptation is going to be in the aftermath of that revival. When the Lord removes that sovereign revival Holy Ghost hand over the nation, that's going to be the ultimate test. Was it just reaction to what things had been before? Was it just religious hype or was it real? Was it a Josiah revival or was it a real revival? When Josiah died, the people went right back to the things they had been doing. So then what is to be done? What do we get from this? Number one, we have to view our recent turmoil of the last couple of years, the pandemics and everything else, as a warning shot from God. Am I saying that God sent this as a punishment for such and such? No, but with Jesus, I am saying you must likewise Repent. And number two, as Christians, there's really nothing new for us to do. We are to double down on what we are always to be doing, which is fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples, going throughout the world, and telling people about the gospel. Prayer, love, all of these things remain true. Jesus gave us instructions that would apply to every culture, every nation, every year. So we must not look to change these things radically when everything else does. Psalm 37, 8, and 9 says, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. You should tape that on your TV screen across the bottom. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. I forbid you to despair as your pastor, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We shall see the Lord's goodness in the land. We're seeing it now. Look at what the Lord is doing in your life and be thankful for it. And even if judgment were to fall today, we can know that it is the will of the Lord. We can know that he will preserve his people as he always does. And we can know that our mission will remain entirely unchanged despite the shifting and the shaking of the world around us. Because we're looking forward to the day when the kingdom of heaven will come. And it will be like a mountain that covers the whole world, swallowing up every nation and every kingdom. And it will be ruled over by one king, and that's our Lord King Jesus.